When I was 16 years old, I had the opportunity to go to Mexico over spring break with a friend's church, during which time we built two houses for local families. It was a big undertaking for those planning, and there were mandatory meetings for months leading up to the trip in order to nurture group dynamics and develop very basic construction skills. After one such meeting, my parents both had commitments, and I needed a ride home, so one of the leaders offered to drive me. Now, while I lived in a working-class neighborhood, my parents both had degrees, valued education, and lived where they did so that they would have the budget for some of life's extras. My mom, in particular, worked very hard to make our house charming and beautiful by tending the flowers that were planted everywhere. But there was no denying that it was simple and small for our family of seven. I didn't worry too much about the size of my house because it was the same as everyone else I knew. But when this leader from the Mexico trip with her three degrees from prestigious higher education institutions dropped me off at my home sweet home, I saw something shift in her eyes. After that day, she often made it a point to make it clear that there would be help for those who were financially disadvantaged. I don't mean any of this to be critical of that youth group leader. Looking back on it from her perspective, or at least trying to, she coming from a wealthier community which was home to a distinguished university, and coming from a church in which many of the families were affluent and highly cultured, I'm quite sure it looked like my situation was lacking in resources and opportunities. I never discussed this situation with her, but I thought about it a lot and have never forgotten how it made me feel. I used to think that feeling was shame, but I now understand that it wasn't so much that I felt judged, but that I didn't feel seen or known. As I experienced the pity or whatever it was, I knew she didn't really know or understand me because I didn't need any pity from her. My parents worked hard in their vocations as a school nurse and police detective, and in doing so taught me what really mattered in life. They kept a small house because it allowed them to take their five children camping at all times of year and twice a year to get dressed up for a dinner and a night out at the theater. I wasn't a disadvantaged girl, but a person with rich life experiences within the confines of a smaller budget. Two years later, in a freshman communications class at WMU, I learned that the greatest human fear 
is being misunderstood. That's why we use so much of our language and our relationships to try and explain our feelings and our experiences. We are doing everything we can to be clear about what we think and feel so that others will really know us, so that they will fully see us. That early experience had organically taught me what it feels like not to be seen and known. You searched me and you know me are the opening words of one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture, Psalm 139. It's powerful for so many reasons, but perhaps namely because it, like all the Psalms, addresses the creator directly without any intermediary or shyness. The Psalms are prayers delivered in the first person to God. And because of their rawness without pretension, they very often capture universal themes in powerful ways. Written many centuries ago, this psalm makes it abundantly clear that it isn't just the fast-paced nature of modern culture, with our dependence on our phones and our blasted schedules or the ways that social media skews perspective, that make us so eager to be seen and known as our authentic selves. I'd argue that this psalm is one of the clearest examples of a personal relationship kind of God. Even though it was written long before the birth of the Jesus with whom, with whom we so often conflate that kind of theology. It certainly depicts humans eons ago as seeing their creator not as a disinterested ruler, but one who loves us fully enough to care about us. A creator who not just cares about us, but cares enough to know us. The God we sometimes think of as transcendent, above and beyond us, is somehow beyond human understanding and also imminent, right here, intimately acquainted with our ways. The Psalms are poetry, a very specific genre within scripture, one that arguably remains even more open to interpretation, with a wider usage of imagery and symbolism than more narrative forms. Because the words are spoken in first person, we might get the notion that all of the words are confessional or literal. But we must understand that just as current musicians write songs from character perspectives, or try to make sense of life experiences they may not personally know, we can imagine that the same is true for the Psalms. As scholar Robert Alter says, this poem is essentially a meditation on God's searching knowledge of man's innermost thoughts, on the limitations of human knowledge, and on God's inescapable presence throughout the created world. 
It seems to me that the power of this psalm gets lost when we try to apply it too easily to modern social issues, which has been done on both sides of the political aisle, in fact. While surely all scripture can inform and inspire our understandings of whatever time or place we're in, I'm somewhat wary of attaching scripture passages to particular movements. What makes this psalm and all of scripture profound and powerful is that it wasn't written in our time, and yet it can help us in our time. It's a balancing act of seeing the way scripture can inform the current hour while being very careful not to twist it to fit the current hour. Scripture, like life, is rarely as neat and tidy as we would like. This psalm in particular is powerful because it is a reminder of just how much we don't know, how very much we fail to understand. Much like some famous portions of the book of Job, this psalm is not meant to be understood with literal interpretations but with minds that recognize how little we know. This psalm reminds us that while we can't possibly know all that there is to know about God, creator of the universe, that same God knows all about us. In a world in which we so often feel disconnected and misunderstood, this is good and astonishing news. God doesn't know us fully because we are bad. God doesn't know us fully because we are good. God knows us fully because we have been searched with a love that passes all human understanding. Once again, the binaries we construct as humans just won't hold. As the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, a height my mind cannot reach. We would be wise to embody some of that humility. Clearly, we can't know with the completeness of God, whose thoughts the psalm tell us are weighty and numbering more than the sand. We are not God, and we have no need or ability to compete with God. But we can be inspired by God. We can recognize how deeply a human life can be impacted by being known, being seen. We can lean in a bit closer to conversations listen more deeply as people speak, read their nonverbal cues, and recognize when our words to them don't land quite right. Listening closely and carefully might allow us to remember their favorite song, a painful memory, a beloved book, or a childhood pet. It might not be perfect, but it might just make a person's world feel a bit less dark, a bit less untethered. 
Even in our most intimate relationships, we cannot be fully known. We can't even be fully known to ourselves, for goodness sakes. But we certainly can be more known than we are through loving, supportive searching in our relationships. If I take any inspiration from this scripture today, it's this. The people with whom we live, work, learn, stand in line, sing, pray, argue, disagree, or attend church with deserved to be searched and known. We deserve to be searched and known. Our authentic selves are worthy of love and we deserve to feel known. It might seem somewhat harsh to us in the description, but that is what Jesus was calling the crowds to do in our passage from the Gospel of Luke this morning. He was asking for the commitment of their full and authentic selves. It can be challenging to be vulnerable enough to show our full selves. In the 1997 film Goodwill Hunting, there's a well-known scene in which Will is meeting with his therapist, Sean, whom he has been referred to as a consequence of a fight in which he beat up a childhood classmate and struck the police officer who intervened. Will agreed to counseling instead of jail, even though he had been to five different therapists in his traumatic life of growing up in foster homes. The therapist, Sean, begins to see Will enough to know him. He has read all of the pages and pages detailing his abusive childhood. Sean understands the way this trauma destroys a person because he had an abusive alcoholic father. And he knows that Will blames himself for the violence and damage that was done to him. Over and over while ripping up the thick file that details Will's abusive childhood, Sean repeats, it's not your fault, with compassion and love. Will initially brushes it off saying, I know. And then with each repeated, it's not your fault, grows agitated and then angry and then eventually pushes Sean. But the ninth time, Sean says, it's not your fault. With that same gently insistent, compassionate love, Will begins to weep and embraces Sean as though his life depends on it. It's cinema. It's not real therapy or real life. But what happens in that scene makes it abundantly clear how important it is to feel seen, to be known, to be understood. It allows us to see and love ourselves. It allows us to heal. That's the enormous beauty of Psalm 139. 
the poetic imagery that makes it plain that the God of love sees us, knows us. That God hems us in before and behind and shields us. We cannot run from God's spirit. We cannot flee from God's presence. We belong to God no matter what. And feeling fully known can then give us enough grace to know the aches of Ukraine, Jackson, Mississippi, and elsewhere in the world. That leads to our knowing taking root in actions of love. God loves us even when we aren't our best selves. The end of the psalm makes that point well. The writer of the psalm is angry on behalf of God, calling out those who hate and defy the Creator. And this here is the most human part of the psalm, the most easily recognizable part of this sacred poem, because it is the place in which the psalmist wants to promote self over others. The psalmist believes God could examine his heart and see no misdeeds, but is very eager and ready to call out the wayward ways of others. But here's the rub. Surely we worship a God who wishes to search and knows those we perceive as beneath us just as much as God wishes to search and know us. Surely, since God thoroughly searches and knows us, God is well aware of our desire to put ourselves over and against those we perceive as beneath us. God sees us as we truly are. The psalm tells us that even before a word is on our tongue, our God knows what it is. God has searched you and knows you and loves you completely. God has searched and knows the person who gets on your nerves the most and loves them completely too. At this table, we are fully known and inspired to seek to know others in love. Love is hard to describe and harder still to practice but this psalm gives us some guidance. It seems likely that in order to love our neighbors as ourselves, we begin by learning how to search and know like our Creator, who sheds so much light that not even darkness is dark anymore. May it be so. Amen.